Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome to this joint session between BRL and LUA. This is Judy Wilkinson, and I'm the president of LUA. And with me is Paul, uh, whatever your name is, Edwards, who is the president of BRL, and I'm proud to say the vice president of Lua. Before I turn it over to Paul, let me give you the opening CEU for this session. It's 00169. That's 00169. Hey, Paul. Hey, Judy, and thank you so much for um, for giving me the opportunity to um, at least in the beginning operate the session. I'm sure <laughs> we'll hear from you before the uh, before the afternoon is over. Um, I, I want to tell folks who are attending that we are going to get to questions pretty early. Um, so let us, uh, on behalf of BRL and on behalf of Lua, welcome um, J.P. Linton this afternoon. J.P., it's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Hmm. You're sounding a little quiet, so if you can get a little closer to your mic, that would be All helpful. All right. Okay. That, yeah, much better. Thank Is you. Is that better? It is, sir. <clears throat> um, I, w- I think we all enjoyed your presentation this morning, and, and uh, probably there are, are a gazillion questions that are out there. So if people want to start raising hands for questions now, um, that would be cool. So I'll, I'll start out with a question while folks are raising their hands. Then we're going to recognize Raymond to tell folks how to do it in case they don't know. Um, how do, how do you feel about being typecast as a narrator? That is, for instance, I think you read virtually all of the Dune series, for instance, um, in, in terms of science fiction. Um, are, are, are you comfortable with that kind of typecasting? Well, I, of course. Uh, I, I'm not, uh, we don't, we never, in my entire career, uh, we don't choose the books that we are asked and assigned to read. And if people want me to hear the entire Dune series, uh, I'm very happy to do so. Excellent. Well, you do, you do very well with them anyway. Thank you. So Mr. Raymond, who is, uh, and we want to thank Tyson Ernst, who's our streamer. Uh, but Mr. Raymond is our, is, is our host. So Mr. Raymond, you want to tell people how to, raise hands and then recognize the first hand that's out there? Well, we have quite a number of people with their hands raised already. Um, uh-huh. But for raising your hand, I, it's in the main screen on iOS, Alt-Y on PC, or I think on Android too. Um, yeah. And then on Mac, it's option Y. And telephone, it's star nine. And first question is um, Diana. Diana. Hello. Hello. Um, Thank you for taking my question. I loved the presentation this morning and I'm not sure if my question is appropriate for for now, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, you mentioned that you you have a three. You were exposed to three 
types of English. I am a um, Brazilian by birth, and uh, my second language actually uh, was French. And um, um, I hear, sometimes I, I hear myself, you know, trying to get the right pronunciation for words, and I try to do my best. But uh, because I lived in Miami for um, 30 years, it was a little difficult for me to just get rid of the, you know, just, just improve my English. I had to speak Spanish most of the time. Um, and I don't speak Spanish, I speak Portuguese. But my question to you, sir, is um, how to, um, I mean, you are hearing my voice and obviously you are an, you are an expert in voices. So how do I improve my, my accent and um, how do I make my voices sound um, pleasant to the listener when I have a dialogue with someone, especially on the phone? Sorry about that. You sound well, darn yes. good to us. Yeah, you sound good? Yeah, Diana. Absolutely. <laughs> but anyway, JP, any comments for Diana? <laughs> well, uh, not having had your experience, Diana, uh, which is, you're, you're so fortunate. I have to say that at the beginning. You're so fortunate. Imagine you have Brazilian Portuguese in your, uh, as the Romans say, in your venis et viscaris in your in your in your gut and you then you come to miami uh it's the united states of america where the predominant language is english but there are enormous numbers as we all know of hispanic americans that live in in florida in your neighborhood and of course live all across the united states and so you have uh, some spanish in your background and your english as i hear it uh is is excellent now, will you, do you want to absolutely eliminate any kind of accent that you might have uh, with speaking English? I would suggest, please don't. Don't do so. Of course, you're going to be identified as not being a native English spe speaker, but you're not. But I, and I think the rest of the panel here can understand every word in English that you spoke. Absolutely. So, I would encourage you. There are, there are many ways in terms of making one's voice better. That's a whole other story, and I don't have time to go into that here. But your voice is very, very fine, and I would be exceedingly happy with it. So let's yeah, go on, too. Raymond. Let's go on, Raymond, to our next yeah. question. And, and folks, when you're answering questions, do tell us what your, what your name is and where you're from. Ralph, you're up next. Please unmute. Yes, this is Ralph Smitherman from Brandon, Mississippi. Hey, sir. All right, uh, JP, I know you've been narrating for many, many years. Uh, did, did you know Buckley Coslow? The, he, he was from New York as well. He was a erstwhile narrator. Did you know him? Uh, what was his name again? Buckley Coslow. No, I did not. Okay, I was just curious because I know you mentioned John Horton this morning. I yes. enjoy his rating as well. We yes. do too. Uh, another question, another caller? Anthony, you are next. All right, it's Anthony Corona from Miami, originally from New York City. So I'm one of those folks that emailed, emailed you a long, uh, long time ago when I first lost my eyesight. I'm a, a lifelong reader and I thought, oh my God, I, I, you know, if I can't read, I want to die. Um, I had never listened to an audio book. Um, so thank you for, for the great work you do. I also love Stephen King. So um, my question is two part. The first part is 
Um, what books, if any, have changed you after reading them, have, have left you changed? And the second part is a little bit more fun. You spoke about your three Englishes. Could you give us maybe a nursery rhyme in your three different Englishes? <laughs> uh, well, okay. Uh, let me start with a book that's changed me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, that's a very difficult one um, to answer because there are so many brilliant, uh, not, not so many, I shouldn't say that, but as I had mentioned a few writers uh, earlier today, one of the major writers, not necessarily that changed me, but that, that just jaw-dropped me, floored me, if you will, of course, is the great American 19th century writer, Herman Melville. Yay. And I, Melville to me is, is one of the gods as far as I'm concerned. And of course, I grew up with many, many brilliant uh, British writers. Uh, Dickens to me is certainly, uh, you know, I'm not comparing these, uh, these particular writers, but there, uh, there are those books like, uh, for instance, I'll give you a title of Melville's that just toured me. <clears throat> and it is a short story called Bartleby the Scrivener. Yes. And if you have ever not read Bartleby the Scrivener, it is one of the most modern, contemporary, uh, astounding pieces of work uh, that I think has ever been written in, in English. <laughs> In terms of the three Englishes, uh, a nursery rhyme, I can speak mainly of, um, well, you know, if you come from the Ottawa Valley there, you know, it, it, <laughs> the Ottawa Valley is a very, uh, very Canadian place, you know, eh? and uh, they, they kind of talk like that. It's, it's, oh, there's a certain Irish element to real Canadian speech, uh, to hear, a, you know, when you hear it, you'll know what I mean. Uh, and I, of course, spent many years somewhat neutralizing my voice because it was part of my, my living. And uh, so that would be my Canadian sort of rendition. Please forgive me, those of you who live in Ottawa. Uh, in terms of British English, the most uh, powerful speech to me, of course, came from my grandfather. And my grandfather was a highly educated uh, Victorian gentleman who, when I would hold his hand walking in the streets uh, in his neighborhood, people in those days, because just the way he carried himself, not only the way he spoke to them, of course, but the way he carried himself, um, made them very often doff their hats to him. They would literally take off their fedoras because when I was a little boy, most gentlemen wore hats. Is that enough for you? That's that very is. good. That's, That's very really good. In terms, hey, Paul, of, Paul, in terms of American, I mean, well, I mean, the, the, the regional American world is, uh, I wouldn't want to embarrass myself in terms of, it was just a gentleman on from Mississippi. I mean, of course, I would act, act his accent the best I possibly could if I came across it in a book. But, uh, or even, these dumps and those, the guys from Brooklyn, you know what I mean, eh? 
what am I going to do when I talk about that? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's, and yet I would, uh, that would be, you know, there's, I've given you some, let me say that. Yeah. You did Paul, well. Do, so do, do you hear the... a book, uh, Books Without Walls topic coming up here in a book that changed my life? Uh, it's, it's not a bad idea. Yeah. But I, 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 we, what we should really have asked, uh, JP, I suppose, is, is what books have you bought? Because you indicated that the books well, that you really enjoyed, actually, you bought. Actually, you know, I do have right beside me. I went to my library uh, when I was working on my, my talk the other day, and I pulled out a couple of books that, I mean, I was just so impressed by. Uh, one is, I mean, I'll even hold it up here. It's called The 40 Fathom Bank by a, it's a novella by a West Coast writer from California. He's passed away now many, many years, but his name is Les Galloway. And it is a story of a young man who goes to sea off the coast of California with an older fisherman. It's exceedingly Hemingway-esque. It's mm -hmm. very short. It's only about 105, 106 pages long. He published it, uh, published it uh, himself about 1984, I loved it. I absolutely, I had to have it. I had to have it so much that I bought seven or eight volumes and over the years have given away copies to my friends. Another nice. book. Another I just book, wrote it down. Yeah, mm -hmm. 40 Fathom Bank, B-A-N-K. Yeah, I got it. Okay. Thank you. And then there's a wonderful writer up in Boston. I think he's still alive. Uh, his, he's a doctor. Uh, his name is Richard Seltzer. And the book is a, a, a book of short stories called Imagine a Woman and Other Tales by Richard Seltzer, S-E-L-Z-E-R. And I absolutely loved it. Uh, again, short stories. <clears throat> Excellent. Thank you. We, we appreciate it. Now, you've, now you've, you're about to create a run on, from NLS on those two titles. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> um, on another questioner, Mr. Raymond? Yes. Uh, next up is Sharon. You are up next. Ah, another board member, maybe. Good afternoon. This is Sharon Strakowski from Worcester, Mass, Massachusetts. I just, I just want to say that Sharon is our ledger editor, does an incredible job, and a Lua board member. Hello, Sharon. Hi. Thank you. Uh, I was really interested, JP, this morning you were talking about um, working out of your home studio. And I remember for so many years hearing that there was always uh, a monitor. So I found that a little uh, astonishing. Uh, and I wondered if you could comment on that. And also, are the procedures for being an audible narrator somewhat different than for NLS? Thank you. Uh, well, first of all, uh, it was many, many, it's like the Library of Congress is, of course, a wonderful conservative organization in the sense of they take a long time uh, to move along with what is happening uh, in the sense that, remember I said we went from real to real, then we went to digital, and uh, then we, uh, you know, and with always with monitors because the Library of Congress wouldn't under, never understood about 15 years ago, 10, not quite 15. I've had my own home studio now for about maybe 11 or 12 years because all the voice guys in the United States, they all said, listen, guys, if you don't get into, I mean, I, I mean when I say guys, I mean women too. I don't please. Uh, 
uh, I mean, all of us, if you don't get yep. into the home studio world and get, you're going to be left out of luck because that is the way recording is all going in the future. It's we, we used to go as actors, you know, when you're auditioning for a commercial, a voiceover, you'd go to a studio in Midtown Manhattan and you would, you know, do your take with an engineer, uh, i.e. a monitor. And of course, uh, you'd be called by your agent if they wanted you or not. But and then, of course, recording audiobooks was the same thing. Uh, you had a monitor there, uh, which, who's basically an engineer uh, who is listening to your recording and uh, very, very rarely making a comment or stopping you. Uh, if you make a flub or you skip a line, of course, they will do that. But where the voiceover business has been going and along comes Audible at the time that this transition, Audible has only been going about mm, maybe about 15 years, something like that. Audible comes along at the beginning of this transition. And of course they took to it like fish to water. Uh, because, you know, you didn't have to pay a monitor. Uh, the the uh, recorder, the narrator, would do all of that uh, as they were recording. I mean, I know in my own head when I make a mistake, not all the time, I won't, I won't. But we didn't, even when we were doing uh, recording in studios with monitors, the monitors would miss uh, parts and emphases and pronunciations etc and of course that's why all raw recording would go to a proofer the proofer would you know you'd go back in the studio with the monitor monitor and you'd lay down all these corrections called pickups and you'd do that well the same thing happens today uh you know i do my own editing uh not extensively not like a real uh, engineer does. I'm not an engineer, but I'm getting pretty good at it, as are most voiceover actors, and because that's the way it's going. I mean, for instance, I'll get calls from Toronto, or I might get a call from California. Would you lay something down for me, Mr. Linton? And uh, we might use it, we might not. Uh, and if we're going to use it, this is what we'll pay you for it. And you produce it in your studio. And that's what I do. So, okay, and that's what all the voice guys are doing. I mean, voice guys, I mean, I'm talking about people who work in the voice business, narrators, uh, voiceover artists, etc. All right, now the, the other question is Audible is, for, uh, no, it's not particularly different. Uh, the thing about Audible is, is they're not as, uh, how shall I put it? Picky. Demanding. Uh, what was that? I, missed. I said picky. Well, that's the point. They're not as demand, but I'll use the word demanding as the Library of Congress, because half the time, the problem with, well, I could go into a whole discussion about where education uh, in the modern world has left us. Uh, there's so much writing out there that is recorded that even the writers writing it don't know their grammar well enough. And, you know, it's not edited well. There are no editors anymore. They're gone are the days of Maxwell Pers Perkins and Sixth <laughs> Avenue, New York, uh, where all the great houses had their own. Uh, well, I, let me give you one example. I mean, I hope I'm not talking too much, please. Oh, no, you're fine. When I first started recording uh, audiobooks uh, on Reel to Reel for the Library of Congress, we had a wonderful head 
proofer working for us, whose name was Frances, and she was an elderly, exceedingly well-educated and bright woman working upstairs. And she had come from the days of the 1930s and 40s on Sixth Avenue here in New York and the big publishing houses. And she was a meticulous editor. So that if we ever had any real questions about what was meant, we would go upstairs to Francis and she would, Francis would give the ultimate yes or no, or she would say in her wonderful up, uh, upscale New York City accent, what have you got dear? What have you got? <laughs> and it was almost British in how she spoke. And Francis would be the one because she came from this enormous demanding, as it used to be, editing background in terms of publishing houses in those days. But those days are gone. So that if you come to Audible just wants the books out there. Now, of course, they want glitches. They want uh, obvious problems edited out. And you record in your home studio for Audible, send the raw audio to a proofer that they assign you. He goes over it sends you back a whole list of corrections. You do them in your own home studio and away they go. And he edits those in and the final book is, is uh, produced by Audible and sold by Audible. So is there a proofer for NLS that you send your raw, raw title to as well? Oh, 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 no question about it. Oh yes, right here in New York in Manhattan, the company I work for, they have their own... Uh, uh, many uh, proofers that they send my work to and it comes back. So in a sense, the Library of Congress has caught up to the modern way of recording, which is home studio. So I, I, let me ask a contextual question that, you know, the American Foundation for the Blind when you started was was essentially doing virtually all of the talking book recording in New York. Exactly. Yes. And, and then... When when the American Foundation for the Blind stopped doing stuff, my understanding is that there was something of a, of a dislocation for a while in New York recordings. How did how did you survive that, and how has it evolved? Well, uh, it's really mainly due to one of the managers who used to manage at uh, at the American Foundation for the Blind. His name is Lou Gutierrez, and Lou. Uh, put a bid in after AFB uh, didn't no longer wanted to bid on the contract in New York. Lou put a bid in in a private firm that he created uh, called Benefit Media, and he was awarded uh, the contract. And he took that firm, and we went and recorded a very famous old editing house in New York, uh, basically an old film editing house in New York called Duart, D-U-A-R-T. And Duart was on West 55th Street. And we recorded there for, oh, probably about 10 years. And he, made, he had made a deal with the people at Duart. Something happened there. I can't go into those details. I don't know what they were. Right. And uh, Lou, again, made a bid on the next level, the next group of contracts, formed his own company called Index Audio, and he went out on his own, partnering with another company, but it's now on West 51st Street. And they have studios there, but now it's all because finally, as I said, the Library of Congress has accepted 
the modern way of recording and its home studio recording. Excellent. Mr. Raymond, another question. Yes. Next up, we have Deborah. You are next. Deborah. This is Debbie Armstrong from California. And this is so delightful. My question is about subjects or genres, either nonfiction or fiction. Please tell us uh, which ones are really a challenge for you, maybe with one or two examples, and which ones do you breathe a sigh of relief when they're assigned to you? Thank you. I'm back on mute. Well, that's a, a, a fascinating question. It's a lot of, a lot of material there. Um, sometimes I have a sigh of relief when when an extremely complex book, what the Library of Congress, as I mentioned before, calls abstruse, what they regard as complicated, difficult, books with lots of foreign languages uh, in them, either fiction or nonfiction, uh, books with, as we used to say in the green room in New York uh, at either the AFB or Duart or wherever we were, oh, big words, Better send it to New York. <laughs> and the reason they did that, as I said before, is only because I'm not to say that in Denver or uh, Louisville or wherever else they're producing uh, audiobooks uh, for the Library of Congress, not to say that those people uh, can't hack it. It's just that they, uh, have, they've known for decades the talent pool is larger in New York uh, than it is in Louisville. Louisville just doesn't have the, the, the vast... Uh, pool of actors to pull from who are able to do uh, books that, for instance, there's a, he's, there, he's not retired. He's a, a narrator called Ken Clyban, who I worked with for years. Well, you know, he recorded in studios next to me for years and years. And Ken would do all the books that had Russian, Russian names, Russian characters, Russian language itself. He would be assigned those books all the time because he had a background in Russian. So, uh, coming back to me, uh, a book that I recently did that I actually did some words from, uh, it, it, it's a nonfiction book. And as I, as I said, I've just picked it out of a hat just because I did it recently. It's a book called The Terroir of Whiskey. Terroir is I a French it. word meaning quality of the earth. And as I said before, it is a book about the uh, composition of earth's that grow particular grains for particular whiskey. And in it, it is filled, absolutely. I've got, for instance, I'm holding up right here, uh, for those of you who are able to see it, I'm holding up a pronunciation sheet that we do for, or I do. I can't speak for other narrators. I have no idea what their methodology is, but this is what we've always done. Uh, my, my pronunciation sheets, and I write with a very, small hand. I have eight pages of notes, uh, probably about 50 notes uh, per page. So we're, I'm talking about 400 notes on pronunciations because the book is filled with chemical terms uh, because that he was an academic researcher, uh, a scientist, and of course, as I had said before, I read out just on page 40, I think I read out, oh, maybe 40, uh, uh, not about eight or nine. I'll just go on here. Um, aldehyde, uh, vicinal, uh, de ketone, uh, leucine, 
disaccharide, uh, multotriose. You see, I mean, I'm just going on and on and on, but I mean, all yep. of the words. JP, could I just ask a quick question? Yeah, this sure. is a delicate question. I'm presuming that the time you have to take to do that kind of research is not time you're paid for. No, no, we're not paid for those at all. That's what I thought. No. So when you get an abstruse book, yes. you put in a lot more time than is actually represented by what is actually recorded and frankly, what you actually get paid for. Well, of course, now the whole, there's no longer a, an abstruse contract. I understand. Uh, Lou and I, my boss Lou at Index Audio and I, we now have to present a case to Washington and the Library of Congress that this book qualifies as abstruse. And basically all it means, both for the producer Lou and for me, the narrator, it means merely a 10% bump up in pay. Okay. That's okay. all it means. And Got that's it. not a lot in Got terms it. of the time that one puts in. So uh, I, I, I don't know if I'm asking all those questions. In terms of fiction, fiction is another animal completely. Uh, that, that particular book I just read from the Terrar of Whiskey, uh, we actually asked for an abstruse uh, uh, de um, declaration for that book, but we didn't get it. They really? said, oh, well, the language is challenging, but we're sure Mr. Linton can do it. And we're not going to pay him any more money <laughs> or you any more money to produce the book. And I don't want to disparage the Library of Congress. I'm sure they've got budget problems like everybody else. I mean, I understand completely. Uh, but as I was about to say, in terms of fiction, fiction is another animal completely. And, uh, you know, you have to you don't have to at all. There are some readers who will not do indicated accents unless it's written in the dialogue itself. Sometimes authors will try to, well, let me just give you an example here. Uh, let's talk about Irish English. Fortunately, I have spent some time in ERA in Ireland proper, and I also spent time in Northern Ireland. And uh, of course, I quickly learned, I have, a 30, I have an actor's ear, and uh, again, I apologize to all the Irish listeners out there, but basically in Dublin, they talk like that, you know. They keep it really low, and they talk in, in, almost in the, in the back of their mouth there. And that's how they talk about, you know, when they speak about things like abstruse books, they'll talk like that. In Northern Ireland, they do a completely different, in, in general, to my ear, a completely different way. When they talk about books, uh, you read a recording for the Library of Congress, you know, They'll raise the, all the ends of their phrases like that. They'll bring them up at the ends. So there's a difference. Okay, now, if you have a character who's from Belfast, which is in Northern Ireland, and I very often, I find it very difficult not to read the English as it's presented in the accent that I know the writer is hearing that person speak even though they're not writing it in the vernacular, if you will. You understand, they're just writing it in the, in the sentences in English. But you know, this character is from Northern Ireland. And is he an old man? Does he talk like that? Does he, does he take breezes, breezes up like that when he's in Belfast? You know, or is he a woman who might talk like that, you know, and be very soft and, and loving and how she talks. There's, there's all kinds of those nuances that I used to be criticized for because as an actor, that's what I would do. And my 
first studio manager far before Lou would say to me, not too much, JP, not too much, you know? So I've learned over the years to cut it back and let the, uh, but anyway, those are some of the nuances. And you have to, of course, if you start a character that way, and a book is 300 pages long, you certainly got to remember, oh, this is how she speaks, or this is how he speaks. You can't sort of drop it. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. Does that answer anything for you? I think it does. I think it does. Mr. Raymond, All right. Raymond, other Raymond, can you tell us about how many hands you have showing? We have about uh, 13 or 14 people. Okay, thank you. So Let's go on to the next one. Is one eight zero six zero six on a phone? Um, I wrote a book about can you identity tell us, theft. Please, please tell us who you are and where you're from. My name is Deb Joyce. I'm from Hawaii. I wrote a book about identity theft. How do I get it onto Audible? It's on Amazon. I self-published. Can you uh, recommend it a website or, or some direction you can point me to? Well, how you can get it read? Is that what you're saying? How yes, you can so that I can get it onto Audible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, recorded. I would go through. I would go through Audible itself uh, as a, as an author, and uh, that's what I would do there. That's all I can suggest for you. If you want it on Audible, uh, there are many other production companies uh, that produce audiobooks. Diane Audio, Tantor. Uh, there there are many other. Uh, companies that I think you should go to possibly all of them and see what the best deal you can get. Audible's not the only game in town at all. Okay. My talking book in Braille Library sent it over to Bard also. Excellent. We will look forward to it. Thank you. Diane is up next. I'm really enjoying this presentation, but um, Mr. Linton, I have to admit that I don't believe I have ever heard any of your books through the Library of Congress and now oh, no. I'm going to have to go into Bard Express and do a search under your name to see what you've read. Um, I understood, this is only my second convention, but I understood that last year it was kind of a tradition for the talking book narrator to read something live you know that that they have read um in the past so i'm i'm wondering if um you might be doing that for us today thank you certainly uh jp JP, why don't we wait till we get our questions done and have you read as the last thing we do that's fine sure that, okay. that makes sense to me as well miss judy what i would say to diane is diane even on bard if you um, if you put in Linton under the narrator, all of the books that JP has read will come up. I did that; it was amazing. Yeah, so so you can you you can you don't have to go to Bard Express, is what I'm saying to you, um, Diane, Mr. Raymond. Next up is um, Glenda. A couple of things, questions. When you're assigned a book and it's a series. What are the chances that you get to read the whole series? Because I've noticed that many, sometimes different authors, I mean, different readers will read, uh, you know, maybe one or two of the series and different, you know, what are the chances that you get to read the series? Because the consistency of the reader uh, 
can either make or break a, a book. Uh, yes. Uh, again, I, I'm, I'm usually, if I'm assigned a series, not only that, very often the Library of Congress wants the same narrator to read the same author, even though it's not part of a series, it might be something else that that author has, has written uh, in the somewhat in the same genre. Uh, very often we will be assigned that author. Uh, right now I am recording uh, a series that I, I will do the whole, just what I'm given, it's books 18 to 21, I don't know who did books, you know, uh, 14 to 17. I have no idea, but I was assigned because I have a feeling. And again, I don't know. I have no, I've got nothing to do with casting at all. But the, the author is an author I had read mm, maybe 20 years ago. So they may have said, oh, that author. Oh, yes, J.P. Lincoln read her some of hers. We'll give him this series of four books. So yes, I am reading a, a series right now. And very often, of course, I, I, it's, it's, it's rare, but it has happened. I don't know why, but I have been assigned the last book of a series that another narrator has read the first three of. And I, I, I don't understand why that's happened, but of course I don't question anything about it. I certainly don't say, I'm not gonna read that. <laughs> You know, I'm an actor. I get, I get an assignment. I do it, or I say no. I don't want to do it at all. But uh, very, that's rare. So that that doesn't happen very often. But basically, when I'm given a series, and when other narrators I know are given a series, boy, they're given a series. And I understand that if you have a truncation like that, it would be, it would be a, a different experience. Let me put it that way. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Mr. Raymond. Sarah, you are up next. Please unmute yourself. Mr. Linton, I got a complex question for you. Now, um, Sarah, read, where, where are you from? I'm from I'm from Tacoma, Washington. Thank you. And actually, um, my location was actually what motivated me to read a book from that you narrated. Um, I read uh, Footsteps in the Snow by Charles Lockman. It was a true crime. Um, now I have a question for you um, because I've heard other authors do true crime and, you know, that's got to be hard to do. I'm wondering what is your favorite genre and what is your least favorite genre? Oh. And I'm not going to get mad if you say true crime, because believe me, um, it's, <laughs> it's not, I'm sure it's not the easiest thing to read because it ain't the easiest thing to listen to. <laughs> well, Thanks, Sarah. I, can I, can I just say, I'd rather not say a favorite genre, particularly in fiction because uh, that might compromise me to a certain extent. Uh, I do it all. And I, I do everything like any professional actor does uh, the best that I can do. But between the genre of fiction and the genre of nonfiction, uh, I must say I'm a little, to, as I've gotten older, because I've done, I did a tremendous amount of fiction. I did way more fiction in my younger days than I did nonfiction. And of course, you know, I, I love it very much and I still do, of course. But I must say I'm more interested now in nonfiction because I'm much more interested, I think, the, and again, I think it's a question of 
uh, it's not a question, it's a, a factor of age. I want to know more. And uh, I, I want to know more quickly. <laughs> and so nonfiction, uh, it's not that fiction doesn't take you places that allows you to know about life in the world. It's, of course it does. But I'm talking about facts as best they can be presented by nonfiction writers. So I must say, I lean today towards nonfiction. Is there a nonfiction genre that you would care to point at? Oh, boy. Uh, well, that's hard to say. I mean, a genre. There are things that I'm interested in. Uh, absolutely. Uh, a, a genre. No, I can't say that there is because generally when you're presented with a book, it's an area that is just uh, so new to you. Uh, I'm just thinking of a book by uh, a Los Angeles journalist writer. His name is Sam Quinones. I don't know, my Spanish is not that mm -hmm. great, but Quinones, I think is his, how you pronounce his last name. And he wrote a book called Dreamland. And that interested me because what's that about? It was, um, uh, well, can I use the silly overused term, mind-blowing book about the absolute uh, proliferation of illegal drug use across the United States, opioid addiction across the United States. And I'm not talking, he wasn't necessarily talking about chemically produced by chemical pharma pharmaceutical company manufacturing. He was talking about in this book, again, I, I give the title if you're interested, it's called Dreamland by Sam Quinones. And it is about the, there are certain, this is, uh, this is drug trafficking, not controlled by the cartels. The young, unfortunately, peasant class uh, in, in Mexico uh, has found ways of harvesting uh, opiates very cheaply and bringing them across the border into the United States and selling these very cheaply produced drugs cheaply to those folks going into strip malls uh, and obscure places where there might be a pharmacy that they don't have a prescription for, they do. And I was, I was just surprised at how this, is, this whole systematology has proliferated and uh, has increased the uh, illegal drug use problem in, in the United States. So that, that as a genre, I, 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 that's not a genre, it's just a book in nonfiction that just knocked me away. Another, for instance, in terms of, I just got one more thing to say about that, uh, the, the rise of artificial intelligence. Uh, I wrote a book, I read a, uh, recorded a book uh, by an author, I think his name is Wegman, William Wegman called uh, A Dangerous Master. And the book was all about how quickly artificial intelligence systematologies are growing by leaps and bounds. And his viewpoint is we've got to get control of these systems before they control us. And I found Flux. that. Yep. Thank you, sir. Mr. Raymond. Next up is 161 and Indian 360 or 70. You are next. 
Hi, this is Melody Holloway from Columbus, Ohio. Thank you for so much for your time and dedication in reading books and being a narrator. Um, it, when you, Before you became a narrator for NLS and Audible, did you appreciate certain genres and certain validity and certain topics within each genre? And do you now appreciate some more than you did before, such as science fiction? Uh, I can barely hear you. Uh, barely. Did everybody get that question? Can yeah. You... So, so her question was: Did do you think that that your time with um, with NLS has changed the way you feel about books? You appreciate genres like science fiction more than you did before. Uh, I'll say a short answer is yes, because I didn't read a, little, a lot of science fiction before I came to the NLS. Uh, it wasn't a genre that I was particularly uh, drawn to, um, but it, you see, let me, I, I don't know if this is another little thing, but uh, just extrapolating off that, uh, yes, the answer is to that question, yes, I did become to, did come to appreciate science fiction a lot more than I did. That said, uh, I'm finding the older I get, and this is not just we narrators, we talk about this experienced narrators, people who have had a lot of reading under their belt. Uh, the quality, I, I, I probably indicated it before, but the quality of writing has deteriorated to such an extent uh, that basically what I do for personal pleasure now is I almost singularly read books in French for my personal uh, reading. Because I don't have to worry, French is not my first language at all, but I don't have to worry about the grammar, uh, you know, because French grammar has its own uh, animal and interesting in and of itself. But I, I'm, I'm fascinated to read in French and that's what I do. So because in reaction to what I'm finding in the main, uh, about contemporary writing, doesn't matter what genre. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked as to where are, are the, the educational level, not only of people who can read and write, but the people who do write for a living. It's astounding to me, as I say, compared to the great writers. And I can give very specific examples. I had an example I can talk about with uh, Mr. Herman Melville uh, that just would shock people today in terms of his brilliance. But that's another story. Did I answer the question? In any you did. You did. Yeah. Well, I, I just have to say, I'm thrilled to hear you say that. I did my master's. This is Judy. Did my master's dissertation on Melville. Yes. And so to hear somebody praise my man, Herman, is a thrill. Oh, oh. And it's not just, please, let's not be just male-oriented about this. I mean, Edith Wharton, yes. uh, you know, you take, oh, you go to Britain, you go to Jane Austen. I mean, these, yeah. these people are beyond the pale in, uh, in terms of brilliance. George uh, and not only brilliance, it's also execution, which means, you know, an educated uh, use of the English language that allows you as the reader to, without stopping you, to take you forward. Anne, you are up next. <laughs> My question is... Anne, where are you who, from? 
sorry, I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm in Foxworth. And um, when I listen to a book, I would really prefer to listen to a book the way a sighted person would read a book. And that is, I don't really like a lot of the voices that people try to use. Um, I've heard so many narrators try to emulate a real high lady's voice or a real deep man's voice. Uh, And I just find it extremely um, distracting. I want to just hear the book read to me. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about that or ideas. And the other thing I'd like to bring up is that Audible seems to be doing a lot of strange things with the voices of the people that they're using uh, to read their books. For example, um, grown women being portrayed as little girl voices. All of that just bothers me. Uh, Mr. uh, Linton. Yes. Go ahead. Well, yes, I, as I have, again, uh, matured more in terms of my reading, uh, I must say, to a degree, I agree with what you're saying, that less is more. And I do a lot less now than I used to. Uh, a lot less. And, and that's, I guess that is a good thing. It is very difficult, though. When you're given a book, and uh, I, I was assigned a book that was written by an English person. It was a British book without question. Now, I'm not, that's not my native world. But to read that in a flat American accent, uh, to me, was doing harm to the book because they, even, in, even in the narrational parts, uh, narrational parts uh, of the book, not the characters speaking, the English have a different way of saying things. They just do. And the book is written that way. And for me to read it as though I was just from, you know, nowhere, does a disservice, in my opinion. However, 90% of the readers out there, I would think, wouldn't know that. One of the reasons that I chose to come to the United States as an actor, because growing up in Canada, you, didn't, there was, you, you couldn't make a living as an actor in my day. You went to two places. You went either to New York or Los Angeles, or he went to London. And the reason I did go to London, because I loved the British theater and I loved British acting and what have you, but I quickly realized that it was gonna be impossible for me to be able to compete with an actor who knew all the nuances of all the various accents throughout the British Isles far better than I did. I just would not be able to compete. So I came to the United States. But that said, there, are enormous numbers of regions in the United States. And even down in Texas, um, would you want me, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Texas and I love the place, but uh, I would have to do something if the book indicated it, that there was a particular Texan character there it would be doing a disservice to the, to the writer. Because the, the, the listener who is not, reading the book as a sighted person would read it is not 
getting what the sighted person would see off the page. The sighted person sees off the page just a bunch of ink and words and is able to filter through their heads to a degree what those words sound like. But not really. It's why it's much better to act a play, to see a play acted than it is to read the play. So. Well, yes. Good point. Uh, Mr. Raymond. Okay, next is, um, phone number and starting in 160. Uh, any in Hi, uh, this is Josette Kernahan calling from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. My hometown. Actually, yeah. There you are. Pardon, oh, you lived here? You lived here in Vancouver? No, 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 no. I live Hello? in New York City. I live in New York. No, I know that. But originally, uh, did you live in Vancouver? Oh, I was born there. grew up there. Oh, wonderful. Anyway, I won't waste time on all that, but um, I thoroughly enjoyed your um, presentation this morning and all of the stuff you were talking about. Uh, Thank you. Uh, English versus U.S. and Canadian ways of talking. And um, anyway, we live, as you know, we're close to the border here, and one word that you did mention was pasta and pasta, and I noticed that most people in this area say pasta now so <laughs> anyway um uh i fortune i had the good fortune of visiting the um afb talking book studios back in 75 in in uh, new york and really enjoyed it and um also um i wanted to ask you i ask every narrator this question every year what is the most humorous uh, thing that's ever happened to you well, um, narrating a book uh, that you've had to go back on any errors or bloopers or whatever you want to call them uh, that you can recall. Ooh, humorous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thank you, Josette. Uh, I, I really, uh, in the sense of having made mistakes and, or, and, and then having to go back on it, or you mean... Uh, while I'm in the studio, something... I, I think I think either would do, uh, JP. <laughs> any, any humorous incident, and if none comes to mind, that's all right too. Um, humorous things. Um, well, I remember one time uh, there was a, a monitor who uh, uh, was it was it humorous? Well, it was because it was so ridiculous. Uh, this this monitor. He loved to ride motorcycles. He's a pretty tough guy. I don't know where he'd come from or how he got into monitoring audiobooks. Uh, but he started shouting at me from the monitor's booth and uh, uh, yelling at me because I was making so many mistakes. Oh, no. <laughs> and all I could do was laugh. And I said to him, I said, well, listen, I opened the door to the monitor's room. I said, well, if you think you can do better, you come on out there and you come and sit down. You read the book. <laughs> he, his, his jaw dropped. And of course, that stopped him yelling at me. But I, 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 I found it funny because that had never happened to me before, nor has it ever happened to me since. And uh, maybe it, uh, he wanted to go home on his motorcycle uh, a little earlier than usual. I have no idea. But. <laughs> 
he just he would just shout a blue streak at me if I left out a word or if I uh, made a mouth flub or something like that. And uh, it really was astounding. Anyway, uh, maybe that was funny. Maybe it wasn't. But it was funny to me because it was so ridiculous. Excellent. Mr. Raymond. Scott? This is Scott from uh, Glendale, Arizona, the Phoenix area. Uh-huh. Uh, JP, weren't you the one who did, who read a long time ago the Gunsmith Western series? I seem to recall way back when you were reading one of those. I think you were, you were it. Also, what are your musical tastes? What kinds of music do you like? Oh, I'm not sure about the West. Certainly, Scott. The Gunsmith by J.R. Roberts, I believe his name was. I may have, but you know, I'm sorry. So many books go. I, I long, it was not remember time. them all at all. I think it was I, like I'm way so back sorry. in the mid 90s or so that I read it. So, so like okay. Uh, and your anyway. second question yep. was musical uh, tastes. What, what kinds of music do you like? Oh, I. Well, so many genres. Uh, I mean, I can go back. Let me go back. Let me start from recently. Uh, I became absolutely in love with Portuguese fado. You know what fado is? Mm -hmm. Fado music from Portugal. I spent years in uh, African-American blues music from the beginnings to the present day. Love the blues. Uh, big band. I'm a huge big band from the beginnings in the 1920s up until big bands no longer really existed. Uh, I, I have a huge record collection there. Um, I, I love country and Western music. I'm a huge fan of all country and Western music, male, female, doesn't matter. Uh, I have a huge collection there. Um, so those are some genres that uh, I have very vast, and that's generally what's happened in my life. I'll, I'll come across a, a genre like reggae, for instance. When reggae happened, I went nuts for it. I went to see Bob Marley live twice, Toots and the Maytals. I can go on and on and on in terms of reggae. Reggae music from Jamaica to me was, oh, one of the great times of my life and remains so. Uh, I like uh, classical music. Uh, orchestral, primarily. I'm a big fan of um, later 19th century French orchestral music. Uh, mm-hmm. I love Eric Satie, and on and on and on. So I don't know if that answer your question. It does. <laughs> Excellent. Next up, Great. we have 150, um, ending in 405. You are up next. Hi, Eric, I heard like California, <clears throat> you have led them, made the difference in life, which is the goal of many people. Anyway, what advice would you give to a, a, a student who wants to follow your footsteps to make a difference in life? What are the things a person should do to be a good narrator? Well, hey there, Dirk. My my answer to that would be the most important aspect of a narrator, just to begin with, is voice quality. Uh, it is something that is not very well understood, in my humble opinion. Never really has been in North America. 
in the United States and Canada, uh, voice quality in terms of an actor's training is not very well understood. Uh, people don't, people go to the theater, I'll go to the theater here in New York and I go to a Broadway play and because I do know what voice sounds like, what it should sound like, when I hear a bad voice and I'll see the audience around me sort of turning away from what they're listening to. Not even, I'm not even talking about the physicality. I'm not even talking about the play. I'm talking about the quality of the voice. And so I spent a long, long time and as an actor and studying to be an actor. I spent a long time working on my voice, studying voice theory, uh, reading wonderful uh, voice theorists' uh, publications about how to produce good voice. And I spent a lot of time also that in my day, uh, I would have to say that the British almost had a lock on what good voice was. Not the accent, nothing to do with that. But if you listen to Sir Laurence Olivier as a classic example, you listen to his voice and you're just, you're just drawn right in. So I'm not just saying Sir Laurence Olivier, I'm saying if you want to be a narrator, uh, voice is number one. You, you, you must know the difference between speaking through the nose like that. You've got to know that. And if you have a voice that's speaking through the nose all the time, and it just is your voice, uh, but you probably, unfortunately, no one is going to tell you because no one knows what a real voice sounds like or how to produce it. And that's very unfortunate. So I would say to anyone starting out to be a narrator, you focus on voice quality first and foremost. Then, of course, you have to go to the next step, which is interpretation, which is either you either are able to do it or you're not. And you're either able to read or not. And if, you, if you're not able to read well, I mean, that means read with sense, read with nuance, read with tone, read with inflection, read with meaning, then you're in trouble. So you got to work hard on all those things. But voice first. That answer the question. Oh, Thank you it so does. much. Let's, Raymond, we're going to take two more questions and then, we're, then I'm going to give it back to Judy. Mary Carla Hayes, you are up next. Hello, Carla Hayes from McMurray, Pennsylvania. And I could listen to you all day. Um, my questions are, is, um, you mentioned a dictionary website this morning that you can go to for dictionaries. And also, is there, when I was taking oral interpretation, there was a, a tape series, that's how far it went back, where you could learn how to do various um, accents and things like that. Is there anything like that in the modern world that one might use to, to practice and hone their skills? Well, uh, it depends on, uh, first of all, let me answer the, answer the first question. The, the go-to site now for me is a dictionary online called One Look Dictionary. One Look. All right. Is it number one or is it the word one? O N E L O O K. One as the word one, one look dictionary. And you just have to put the word uh, that you're wondering about in that blank and uh, 
push the uh, and, and push enter. And up will come if there are, uh, you know, uh, dictionary uh, definition for it. Up will come every dictionary, well, at least 10 or 15. All right. JP, is know. this onelookdictionary.com or .org? Do you know? No, no, I think it's .com. I think it's onelook.com. Very I good. think it's probably onelook.com. But if you put in the search bar one look dictionary, I think you'll get it. Now very the other good. the other aspect to that too, a very good news site, and this site is only a few years old, that we've discovered is a site called Uglish, Y-O-U-G-L-I-S-H, Uglish.com. And it's a, an, an amazing site that has taken clips from all over the internet of people pronouncing the word that you put into the enter bar. And uh, it's a fact, because then you hear people speaking it. Uh, so oh. I could go on and on about that. But anyway, the dictionary from a visual, from a, a definitional point of view is one look and listening to it spoken, uh, the other one I can recommend, but there are others, but is Uglish. Uh, no, the, the second question was again, I'm sorry. It was uh, about where yes, to find yes, examples of, of. When I was uh, starting out as an actor and also as a narrator, there were a series of records and I don't, yes, they do include some U.S. English. One record, now this is vinyl, but it probably exists now. It's probably been digitalized. There's a book called, uh, uh, a record called English with an accent and English with a dialect is the other record. And uh, in terms of being able to uh, do particular accents and it will list what it has a recording of. I don't know if that'll help you at all in terms of what you're asking me, but those were two records that I had that I would go to and listen and do the best I could to absorb the actor who had laid down that particular English with an accent or English with a dialect. Excellent. I'm probably going to to not um, to not live up to my reputation. I'm going to hand it back to Judy because we just have about six minutes left. Okay. Um, do you actually have something you can read, JP, or would you rather us just continue questions? Well, I think people can hear my books uh, through the Library of Congress or through Audible, uh, whatever. I mean, I could read something, but I don't think necessarily, I don't want to take up people's time <laughs> listening to me read a book that they can hear on their own. So if there are other questions out there that want to be answered, I'd be uh, perfectly yeah. happy to do that. Yeah, very good. Let's, let's take a couple more. Don. Don Horn from Long Island. I was very interested in the comments regarding accents and the like, because I've actually stopped reading some books because of that. But what I'm wondering is, you've worked in both commercial narration and in narration through NLS. Do you have any indication or any information about whether narration preferences of blind people who use audiobooks possibly much more frequently are different from those of their sighted counterparts who may use them more selectively. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I don't, Don, I don't have an answer for that. 
I really don't. Uh, I don't. What can I say? <laughs> okay, let's go on to the next <laughs> question. Good. Danielle? Thank you. You okay. and your fellow narrators just do magic. And I got a sample of that during this presentation. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Danielle. Thank you. Okay, I think that's probably a wonderful place to end it. So let me give the closing uh, CEU or CEC, whether you want a unit or a credit. And the closing number is 68847. Paul, thank you. 68847. 68847. Okay, Paul, a final word and a farewell. I think the final word would be to ask JP. It, JP, is there a, is there an email address you'd be comfortable giving out if people wanted to drop you a note? Well, certainly uh, you can go through my website, uh, <coughs> which is uh, jplinton-voice.com. Excellent. Uh, so uh, that's my website, and uh, there is a way to contact me. Uh, which is just merely JP at jplinton-voice.com. Excellent. Excellent. I, I suspect loads of people will be looking at that. Okay. Um, All those Judy, questions we didn't get to. Certainly. Yep. Judy, thank you so much for, uh, for allowing me to uh, operate with this one. And we'll see everybody back in about 15 minutes to hear about an exciting new book. So please come back. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>